We are at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, where we're joined on the line by Professor Xavier Fazio from the Department of Science and Environmental Sustainability. Professor Fazio and a colleague have written a piece for theconversation.com entitled STEM Learning Should Engage Students' Minds, Hands, and Hearts. Professor Fazio, good morning and welcome. Oh, good morning. Nice to be there with you. It's good to have you with us. So the the uh, I'm inferring from the title of your article, Xavier, that uh, STEM learning, which should engage students' minds, hands, and hearts, sometimes is kind of missing the mark. Is that the implication that you dropped into that title of the article? Yeah, I, I think one of the uh, reasons we uh, decided to write uh, sort of a reminder reaction piece in, in the conversation is to kind of highlight some of the challenges that we're, we've seen in, in our, our research as well as our experiences working with uh, teachers in schools. And the idea is to move beyond uh, just quizzes and tests and or standardized tests and try to create assessments that engage the students not only in terms of their minds, but uh, how they do things, and of course, make emotional connections. So sort of that mind, hands, and hearts perspective. Exactly. Okay, now, so there's a lot to be said or improved upon with respect to student testing, but also how about teacher attitudes, Professor Fazio? Uh, Is STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, so scientific and discipline-oriented that maybe those who teach it could loosen up a little bit? I think um, I think in general, uh, teachers are um, amenable to to sort of finding a way to engage their students. I think the challenge is more along the lines of how curriculum is uh, set up. See, a lot of curriculum you'll notice in, in, in many of the provinces and jurisdictions in Canada and certainly around the world, they don't necessarily have a nice way to integrate STEM. Mm-hmm. And because of that, teachers are sort of put into their traditional silos of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Right. And then the, they're sort of left up to their own devices or types of collaborations they can develop within schools to put it all together. And certainly teachers are trying to do that, but it would be important to support teachers in terms of policies and, and, and other guidelines that could help them implement a more authentic, integrated approach. Okay, Uh, an even more rudimentary question for you this morning, Professor Fazio, because there has been a movement in the education industry in the last, say, probably 15, 10 to 15 years to, um, to try to persuade more young women and girls to consider STEM as an academic option and indeed a career future. Uh, and there's been a lot of emphasis placed on that over the last decade or so. Is it reasonable to say that worked? I think there's still a lot more that can be done. Uh, the efforts that are being put into place, both in elementary, secondary, as well as post-secondary institutions are, are certainly uh, important, but I think there's still a lot more that can be done. In particular, I think, you know, going back to one of the points we make in our article, when you begin to engage in um, authentic problems, things that are interesting to the school, to the community, to the individuals, you begin to engage them at a level that I believe would interest all learners. And that would include, obviously, females, males, and, of course, students from all backgrounds. So I think there's still more to do. Okay. And what what route, what sort of uh, all adjustment 
lane change maybe even required here to to see that go forward to see that open up and um accommodate even more possibilities going forward because clearly in the article you're you're looking at ways to open things up even more if we if we're for slowly but surely getting to opening up stem for girls and young women clearly we're doing a few things right we just need to do more of same for the entire sector of stem so let's talk about some of the suggestions you bring forward. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I, I think needs to be done is when you begin to give students some um, choice in the terms of how they actually focus in on particular tasks. So if something is uh, authentic and meaningful to students, usually there's some type of student-led investigation or choice behind those types of, of, of experiences that they, they accomplish in schools. So I think that's one way forward. The second thing that I believe... So more does, more real-life um, uh, engagement, yeah. uh, some problem-solving about real things rather than theoretical fabrications. Yeah, and, and that's the key, right? It's how, how can we make it more meaningful to students and in turn, meaningful to the school communities as well. See, many real-world applications are right outside the door. Yeah. You don't have to go far. You can go even on the school premises or in the local school community, and you'll find real things, things that students experience almost on a daily basis. They'll walk by, for example, uh, a creek that they see polluted or full of uh, you know, garbage, for example, and they'll wonder, why is that, and how can we do something about it? Those are the kind of meaningful things that you always want to bring forward. And the idea is how can we then align our teaching and assessment to use those opportunities to engage students? And again, coming back to that minds, hands, and heart perspective, I think is a wonderful way to reorient uh, the, the things we do in schools for all students. Yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm curious, too, about uh, the, uh, again, some kind of rudimentary stuff here, uh, uh, again, with, with the, the discipline aspect of science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, sometimes, I, I guess, uh, it, it becomes uh, such a technical uh, sector. I think parents need to sort of uh, tune into what you're saying here, too, because sometimes parents have great or grand aspirations for their children. And, you know, you're to, you're going to be a STEM student because that's the that's where your best career options lie, uh, yeah. and, and which may or may not be true. But yeah. there, there's a little more, uh, shall we say, expansion of thinking required on the part of parents uh, in this in all of this picture too, isn't there? Yeah, no, I think so. Um, you know, the, a long time ago, uh, you know, uh, a long a novelist and chemist by the name of C.P. Snow, he wrote a, a really compelling piece called "The Two Cultures." It really was a lecture trying to suggest how can we better connect the sciences to, you know, the social sciences and the humanities. Mm -hmm. And I think today, more than ever, we have to recognize that interdisciplinary type of knowledge and learning is really the way forward. If you look at what we're experiencing now through this COVID-19 pandemic as an example, you know, obviously the science is all around us. It's been reported in the media, it's been reported in all social media outlets, etc., the question is, though, there's also compelling, you know, humanistic and social science elements to this that we're all experiencing as well. Right. So the question is, how do we address this? Well, what if schools can better reflect what is going out there and try to give students opportunities to be able to engage in these more meaningful things? And I guess parents are a part of that as well as the school systems 
as well as ministries of education. This is sort of a collaborative effort that has to move forward. Indeed. Well, it's, it's, I'm glad you brought up the pandemic, uh, Professor Fazio, because I was about to, too, because here we are in the midst of a global phenomenon that every student on the face of the planet is learning from in some way, however involuntarily, in many cases. Yes. Uh, but nonetheless, it is so real, and uh, you talk about an opportunity earlier uh, in terms of, uh, of solving problems that are uh, real-life problems rather than theoretical propositions in a textbook somewhere. And if more, right. if more STEM teaching was focused on more real circumstances, it may be even more appealing to more individuals. And here yeah. we are, and here we are in the middle of of, of this incredible global phenomenon that uh, would suggest. Uh, and I, I imagine your job as a teacher is made considerably more difficult. Yeah, as a matter of fact, take a minute and talk to us a little bit, just from a personal level, Xavier, about how you've had to modify your teaching going into this uh, fall semester. Well, it's uh, the remote where well, we're remote learning. Sure. Uh, yeah. Is happening right now, and certainly it's been a challenge. Uh, my teaching involves. I'm in a faculty of education, and so I do science teacher education. And so you start to think about how can you create these experiences online, and it's challenging, mm-hmm. uh, without a doubt. And and, and so, um, you know, you start to recognize, i, I just give you a quick anecdote. When uh, I was started remote teaching back in uh, the, basically March, when we all had to uh, isolate and quarantine, mm-hmm. and um, I, I actually started to put resources on the pandemic itself as, as teaching opportunities. And you started thinking about uh, how can I show the students what's happening? And there's some wonderful digital tools that are available mm-hmm. that actually show how, you know, disease transmission occurs and little, little type of uh, simulations that you can, you can work with, et cetera. And you start to see that, you know, um, the opportunities are there. Like this is a, 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 an unfortunate opportunity, but it just brings home the, the, the reality that we have to begin to align um, our science uh, education program, including our assessment and teaching, to these authentic uh, type of uh, context in situations that we're immersed in. Absolutely. And of course, with the pandemic, not only is there the teaching of the science involved, but there's also the human element of the toll it's taking on people around the world. Our guest on the line from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, is Dr. Xavier Fazio. And we're talking about an article that he wrote with a colleague recently for theconversation.com called STEM Learning Should Engage Students' Minds, Hands, and hearts. Dr. Fazio, a, a few weeks ago, I had a conversation on this program with a driving instructor from Victoria. He runs the largest school on Vancouver Island. And he and his colleagues have a bit of a, a bit of a problem with many of their peers in the driving instructing business because he says, and I think he was right, a lot of driving instructors teach their students how to pass the driver's test. Very few of them actually teach their students how to drive. So the question, and I'm, I'm, I'm flipping the question to you because you talk mm-hmm. a lot about standardized testings and the limitation of uh, some of the standardized uh, stuff that goes on in, uh, in uh, schools as being restrictive. So do teachers or are teachers in some cases teaching the kids how to pass the test rather than teaching them the curriculum? Well, certainly when you look at jurisdictions that have standardized tests in particular, and some of these can be high stakes so that, the, for example, the students need to pass this in order to get 
their credits, their degree, their, their diploma, that sure. kind of thing. Of course. Sure. Yeah, then, it's, then you do see teachers spending uh, extra time focusing on the tests because of, of the high-stakes nature of them. Uh, but not all jurisdictions do that. And uh, although in some jurisdictions, particularly some of the research that, that I've done, even when you have some standardized assessment, sometimes you can take away from other areas. So, for example, um, in, in Ontario, language and mathematics are assessed. And because of that, you can imagine the teachers do dedicate some extra time to these particular assessments. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it gets t- science, for example, gets, uh, you know, put to the back seat, as I, as I like to say, sometimes. And that means students have less opportunities to engage in maybe some of these performance opportunities and engaging in authentic uh, problems that are, that are important to their, to their school, to their community, to their students. But yet, sometimes it can do that. I think the, the, the challenge for teachers, though, is to think of uh, how to use uh, this in a, in, a, in a tandem way. In other words, it's not that you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater when right. it comes to teaching of the test, but how can we use that to leverage that, to use those skills that, you do, that you're developing, getting ready for that test, to then engage in more authentic, performance-based, and meaningful type of opportunities. So the driver driving test, for example, obviously you want students not only to be able to do well for the test, you want them to be able to perform well after no afterwards, kidding. right? That's right. That's that's exactly what we're also trying to you know think about when we're thinking about uh, STEM STEM teaching and assessment. Well, let's talk about teaching because you teach teachers uh, and and yeah. uh, at theconversation.com where your article is featured. Uh, just poking around uh, last night doing mm-hmm. the little homework, I came across another article entitled "Mathematics is about wonder, creativity, and fun." So let's yeah. let's teach it that way. This is, and it goes on and on. I I yeah. uh, I drop math at the earliest available opportunity in my life because it was never fun. It was never ever for one year in one class by one teacher ever fun. And as a result, I mean, I, I get that it's logic and I get that it's fundamental, but you know, it could also be fun as well as being fundamental. And so it was always. I mean, you, you knew why you were taking it. I still use the basic. I remember my times tables for crying out loud. <laughs> Xavier. So, I mean, obviously some of this stuff stuck, but it was never yeah. fun. And and I think yeah. I think that if you could add that, and this is what you talk about in your article, should engage students' minds, hands, and hearts. Nothing wrong with having fun at school. Well, listen, I, I, I fully agree with you. And I, 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 just getting back to I teach teachers, and one of the early questions I asked them, I said, can you tell me the most memorable science uh, experiences you've had in your educational career, elementary, secondary, post-secondary, inevitably, um, no one brings up the idea of that great test that I wrote or that wonderful exam uh, that that I wrote in grade 11 or or my second year. But they do bring up things. I do remember doing a science fair Mm -hmm. in grade 7. When I was 12 years old, and I and I figured out how to compare, you know, two different types of toothpaste, or I, or I looked at how plants grew in, in different environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would they remember something from the age of 11, 12, 13, but then can't even remember what they did the year before on an assessment and exam? Because it engages their emotional uh, 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 persona, sure. who they are, and it also connects to the, the cognitive as well as them doing it doing something important. And so I think that's really, really critical for, for learning and engagement in students. 
and are uh, is the uh, no you because t- you have a PhD in curriculum and and know yeah. uh, how these courses get put together and the layers and layers of approval that go into uh, mm-hmm. uh, cementing them into place. Uh, is yeah. there is there some work to be done on the part of uh, curriculum programmers as well? Do they need to be a little more sympathetic to some of the the uh, lines of thinking that you're introducing here? I, I think there's opportunities here to create what I call curriculum space. And what I mean by that is instead of packing, jamming the curriculum with these discrete elements or knowledge bits, why not give opportunities for teachers to extend what they've, the fundamentals, the foundational learning, and so students have an opportunity to do project and problem-based learning and more performance-based type of activities that would better you know, emulate those kind of meaningful, authentic experiences that they see in the real world. I, I think there's opportunities here. I suppose, though, the tough part is selling all of that to people who grew up in a very heavily standardized, very clearly defined uh, program, and, and they see, I'm sure, in many cases, their role as continuing that forward, although I'm, there, I'm sure there are a few radicals or rebels there who would, who would like to go, no, I don't want to be uh, see, see future children taught the same way I was. Let Let's try this instead. There's got to be a little bit of that going on, too. Uh, there are. There are. In, in my article, there's, for example, uh, a few uh, uh, programs that uh, an elementary program and a secondary program that I've discovered that are, are showing a way forward. They're showing that you can be a robust, rigorous type of interdisciplinary program that can also address those important competencies we all want in students, but also gives uh, some type of latitude where they can begin to de- devise learning environments where students can again engage and explore in, in meaningful meaningful topics that are relevant to them and to, to their community. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you this morning, uh, Dr. Fazio, and I'm commending your article, STEM Learning Should Encourage Students, Minds, Hands, and Hearts, to our listeners, and you can find it at theconversation.com. It was written by our guest, Xavier Fazio, and his colleague, Louis Volante, from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Dr. Fazio, Xavier, thanks so much. Great to speak to you, sir. We appreciate having you with us today. Not a problem. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, the same to you. Thanks for joining us. Looking at an article here on the website of Restaurants Canada, which is restaurantscanada.org, uncertainty is the only certainty, according to Restaurant Canada's Food Service Facts Report. That was written in August. I don't imagine a great deal has changed. If anything, it's perhaps gotten a little more tense. Here to talk about restaurants across Canada, and then we'll zoom in on the BC situation, is Mark von Schelwitz. Mark is Vice President, Western Canada, with Restaurants Canada, and uh, is back with us on the show. Mark, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning, Stern. Pleasure to be here. That's good to have you with us, Mark. We'll talk about BC and the election and uh, the 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 focus that uh, Restaurants Canada is trying to bring to the BC election in a couple of minutes, Mark. But first, the big picture, if you don't mind. And once again, this weekend, we have not the entire province of Ontario, but we have key areas like the greater Toronto area, including Peel and Ottawa and parts of greater Montreal, locked down because of a, a, a surge 
surge, the second wave, the much-anticipated coronavirus second wave, has arrived in those areas. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're in your business, if you're in the restaurant racket at this time, and you made it through the first one, Mark, and here you go now in the fall, and this comes by, and you're ordered shut down again, Man, that must be just absolute, just almost the kiss of death to some of those, especially smaller establishments. Yeah, no, very true, Sterling. And of course, that was our biggest fear going through the summer. Everyone was worried about a second wave and, and what would be their, uh, the implications of that. And, uh, you know, many of our members, even before we hit the second wave right across the country, uh, you know, they're just barely hanging on. Sure. In fact, uh, roughly 80% of them are still not making any profit to half of them are still losing money. So, you know, you take those growing debts that were happening through the first lockdown and the reopening costs and all the money that we've been spending to make sure that our staff and our guests are are, are safe. And uh, yeah, the biggest worry that we had in all our surveys is sort of like, okay, what are we going to do to get through the winter if there's another close down? Basically, that's it. And as much as 60% of the industry could shut down is what we heard uh, of our members could shut down if they were locked down again for any uh, conceivable period of time. And right now we're looking at, as you mentioned, uh, in the country right now, we've got Montreal, Quebec City, Toronto, uh, Ottawa that uh, are all sort of on that sort of shutdown again. So uh, so obviously not very good news for our, our restaurant members. And, uh, and certainly uh, there's going to be a good chunk of them that aren't going to get through this next shutdown. Hey, Wayne Gretzky's restaurant's even closed in downtown Toronto and not likely to come back. That's a bit of a stunner, isn't it? Because if anybody's going to have a successful food operation independently, uh, it's, it's a guy like Gretzky on name value alone. But Mark, talk to us a little bit, if you can, for a moment, about the difference in survivability between a mom-and-pop one-off restaurant operation versus a chain like Earl or the keg or others that have deeper pockets and the ability to take a few more hits going forward? Well, I guess there, there's a, a couple of different things. I mean, each scenario has its advantages and its disadvantages. If you're a small independent restaurant, uh, you're nimble enough usually that you can turn your business plan and pivot it on a dime and, and make that switch over to takeout and delivery. And you've got a little bit more control. If you're a big chain restaurant, well, you've got that marketing power behind you. Mm-hmm. You've got, uh, uh, you know, the, the franchisor, as, you, as it were. Um, you know, you, you've got some advantages there, but it's a much bigger ship to turn around, so it's not quite as nimble. So, uh, you know, there, there are people as well that uh, are in the franchise system that have to pay also their franchise fees as well, so there's some extra costs involved. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult, and we're such a... Uh, a, a diverse sector where we've got so many different sectors and subsectors and concepts in the industry that sure. how they how they survive this will really depend on their particular concept. But really, the, I think the big thing that we've learned and the thing that's going to stay with us long after uh, COVID is even done is just that reliance on takeout and delivery meals. Uh, it exploded by eighty six percent before COVID. And and really now, if you don't have some sort of a takeout and delivery business to fall back on, 
uh, you're going to have find it really difficult to to, to survive just with on-premise dining, especially as we're moving now into the winter months and and that patio seating's not available either. So uh, I think that's one of the things for survivability that uh, we've heard from our members is they've had to make that change really, really quickly. But uh, certainly it's tough on the smaller guys because they don't have any capital, they don't have... Uh, you know, when when they get their, their growing debts, when they can't pay their rent, when they, they can't pay their fixed operating costs, obviously they don't have as much uh, uh, a length of time or as much uh, access to capital as, say, somebody that's in a larger uh, restaurant type of uh, uh, operation. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those uh, uh, benefit programs the feds are uh, try, trying to tweak to make things a little faster and a little easier for some recipients uh, in just a couple of minutes. But, Mark, you were talking about capital. And, and again, uh, again, a smaller operation. So COVID comes along and they get shut down for X number of months. And then they're allowed to reopen and, and maybe have a little bit of a pickup and delivery or curbside service and so on. And then they're, they're, they're allowed to go to phase two in which a certain percentage of clientele are allowed to come back in. And so here they are. They've gone through months and months of virtually no income whatsoever. They've exhausted all of their funds just paying the rent. And now they have to find more money. Money, uh, and in some cases, is that secret fund that we never, ever wanted to even let anybody know about, let alone touch. That's been dipped into because they had to buy plexiglass and lots and lots of it. And so now they've just exhausted all the money and boom, uh, they get shut down again. I'm thinking, of course, in southern Ontario this morning uh, in that case where you you literally every your last cent just went to put up dividers between the booths. And now the whole joint shut down again. Awful morning for those folks. Yeah, no question. And, you know, it's it's funny, though, because we you know, for the people that are coming back to restaurants, I mean, 87%, according to a recent survey, of the people that are visiting restaurants are having a really safe, reliable experience. I agree. Very safe going out there. But yep. uh, but still, you know, in, in effect, a lot of our members feel like, oh, geez, you know, we're being sideswiped. We're doing such a good job on this. And, and when the numbers go up, uh, you know, we're obviously... Uh, sort of sideswiped by all these measures when, you know, most of our members feeling they've been doing an excellent job at keeping their, their guests and their staff safe. And uh, so, so yeah, no, that's obviously very concerning that, uh, you know, we're now in another shutdown in certain parts of the country. And of course, uh, once that happened last week, our phones are ringing here too. Is, is anything else going to happen in BC? Exactly, yeah. Uh, you know, in other parts of the country, because, yeah, there's a lot of fear out there right now, Sterling, as far as how am I going to get through then to next spring, which hopefully by then we'll be getting into a vaccine and, and hopefully we'll be through the worst of this. But, uh, you know, it's uh, 2020 has been a very, very difficult year, obviously. Mark Von Schelwitz is with us. He is a vice president with Restaurants Canada. What are you looking for, Mark, from the Greens, the NDP and the Liberals as they run their election flags up the polls? Well, yeah, you know, Sterling, as we've just been talking about, uh, BC restaurants are certainly struggling to survive the ongoing pandemic and government assistance continues to be needed so that they can pull through uh, this uh, pandemic. And we've... Uh, provided all three parties with uh, a bunch of uh, what we call a menu for recovery, which uh, talks about recommendations to help our cash flow, uh, help us with rent, labor, alcohol, and just uh, specific food uh, sector support and red tape reduction. And 
really pleased that since we provided all these parties with this uh, menu for recovery that we've already had all three parties actually uh, respond in their election platforms with, with some things to help our industry. So, uh, But there's certainly more on the list than what's been announced so far. And uh, things that, uh, that have been announced so far that uh, are really key for us, for example, on the alcohol side is with the NDP promising to make this wholesale pricing, which has been a battle we've been fighting to get for years. Absolutely. Uh, permanent. And the alcohol for takeout and delivery is a huge one as well. And we're also pleased to see in the NDP platform a commitment to tie all future minimum wage increases uh, to to a cost of living indexation formula. Uh, that gives us predictability going forward and some reasonable sort of, uh, based on how we do our raises for all the rest of our staff, based on cost of living and average weekly wages, as opposed to some pretty big jumps that we've had to go through over the last few years uh, to get to $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other other things that uh, you know both the NDP and the Liberals have announced is uh, on the cap on, on takeout and delivery fees. I mean, we've really been hoping uh, that we could work with our, our third-party aggregators to, to drive those costs down, but it's still very, very difficult for a restaurateur to make any money when uh, third-party aggregators charging them about 25 to 30 To 30, yeah. One of those, so now they're, now they're talking about capping it at 15, which is what you've been trying to persuade them to do voluntarily, uh, and with not a lot of uh, acceptance on the other side so far. So if, uh, I, and I recall Mr. Eby uh, saying uh, in an interview about this matter that if indeed they were re-elected, they would put a cap on the amount uh, at 15% instead of 25 or 30. Uh, it, you've been trying to negotiate that up front anyway with the, these third parties, and they haven't been very receptive so far. Well, no, they haven't. I mean, obviously, they've got to uh, make some money, too. This has got to be a win-win situation. But, you know, where they, these have been implemented in the United States, in San Francisco, New York, and Seattle... Uh, you know what? The third-party delivery companies are still able to 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 make some money at that 15% cap. So we think this will certainly make it a much more of a win-win situation. So uh, the other thing that uh, we're really happy that uh, was in our our uh, uh, recovery guide recommendations was the the working capital grants through this small and medium-sized business recovery grant right. that is really important to help us with rent. The Green Party came up with a rent assistance program up to 25% of your rent. If you're under 50000 that's very helpful too. Uh, but there's a number of things as well that uh, we're hoping that, uh, um, which may not have be the big ticket items, but for example, one of the things we heard from our members is that uh, liability insurance is, is really, really difficult right now and getting reinsured through the uncertainty of COVID. Sure. So, some sort of protection for for liabilities in case there's a COVID-related case that ends up uh, uh, costing the food service establishment and insurance. So that's an issue. The other thing that uh, a lot of people forget when we had that first shutdown, Sterling, is that we literally gave away millions and millions of dollars worth of inventory, food, and uh, to all sorts of different charities. And uh, a lot of our members saying, geez, it would be nice if we got some sort of a, a tax credit uh, sure. or some sort of a subsidy to, to recognize all those food and beverage donations that took place uh, for a couple of months there. So that's something that's kind of a new one that I thought uh, that members came up with, which was uh, which was an interesting ask as well. But uh, uh, the other thing that we're looking for, obviously, is uh, 
is, you know, let's have a do-no-harm type of policy with new legislation that comes in, especially on the labor side, because we're such a labor-intensive industry mm-hmm. that any labor changes that cost employers more money can have a real impact on, uh, you know, our industry, which, as you know, is already a low-margin, competitive, labor-intensive business. Uh, just uh, any little bit helps. And, and certainly we're very appreciative, Sterling, because, you know, uh, when this first started in BC, we lost between March and April, we lost 112,000 out of the 190,000 people in the industry. And we've hired now back over the summer, 97,000 of those uh, of those employees that were laid off. So we're in a much better situation because of those government programs like the wage subsidy and, you know, this new rent assistance program that the federal government announced is mm-hmm. going to help us get through. Uh, but I guess the point being that uh, we certainly need those supports. Uh, A lot of our members are saying, look, we're in this situation through absolutely no fault of our own and how we run our businesses. So the government has got to be our partner uh, to get us through this. And and for us, as the third largest uh, private sector employer in the province, uh, you know, when we when we recover, so does the whole BC community, uh, BC uh, economy, because we're in every single community, and and you know we're providing jobs, and and uh, uh, and you know that community, so people can go out and, and still eat something. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, it's incumbent on any government, whoever is elected, to continue working with us to make sure that that we survive and that we keep hiring back those people as as a very important economic contributor to the province. And I think you're right to point out that a lot of a, a lot of effort and a lot of thought and, and not just following guidelines, but a lot more creativity other than just observing the rules has been put into making restaurant indoor dining experiences safer and still quite enjoyable. And uh, I've been out for, for dining at patios first to you know, start, start outdoors. And gradually over the last couple of weeks, we've been working indoors, had a couple of nice dinners lately, Mark. And, and again, felt really quite safe uh, uh, as part of the process. It doesn't help when public health officials continue to express serious reservations about dining out. I know they're, I know what they mean, and they mean well, but it's a, oh, it's a dagger every time they say something like that. So uh, let's hope going forward, as now you've identified the fact that the parties involved in the BC election are keenly aware of the, the hospitality and restaurant sector, let's hope that whoever wins is uh, quick off the mark to give you guys the assistance you're looking for. It's awfully important. Important. And Mark, uh, we thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Sterling, and happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Well, the same to you, Mr. Von Schellitz. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to have you with us. Mark Von Schellitz is the Vice President for Western Canada with Restaurants Canada, and you can find them at restaurantscanada.org. Adrian Scoville is back with us. Mr. Scoville is the President and CEO of the Automotive Retailers Association of British Columbia. Adrian, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling, and thank you for having me on this morning. Oh, it's a pleasure. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, the same to you. And uh, well, we got a lot to talk about here, Adrian. Uh, not the least of which is mandatory vehicle inspection. I know that's something the automotive retailers are really pushing for right now. But let's back it up to square one because not everyone heard you the first time you were on the program. So tell us first of all who you are, the Automotive Retailers Association. Well, we, we really are the 99% of what happens with your vehicle. So basically, I look at it as everything after the new car is sold, that's us. Uh, we tow them to the shops, we uh, bang the vents out, we make them look good again. But more than that, we make them safe again. Uh, we're also the people that maintain them. 
uh, and we resell them as well as uh, represent the the actual recycling industry. So finally, when they reach their end of their life and we take them apart, um, that's us. So your members then are, uh, uh, I would imagine, pretty much everyone in the automotive sector in this province, from people who sell cars to people who repair them and, and almost everyone in between. Well, exactly. Well, everyone in between. I don't think you're, 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 we need the caveat of almost, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, we do everything with them in between. Um, so they're, they're all of those uh, independent business people that, uh, that run their businesses every day to support the automotive industry. That's ours. Now, one of the things that you are doing on your website, which is ara.bc.ca, friends, as uh, you have the uh, you keep uh, you're tracking the election uh, on your website because, of course, you <laughs> have, you have a vested interest in the outcome of the election uh, as uh, driving and automotive uh, concerns are front and center for a lot of people. Are you surprised, uh, for example, Adrian, how much profile ICBC is enjoying this provincial election? Uh, no, I'm not actually. I, uh, we, you know, in in communicating with government frequently, uh, we we communicate with all parties. We're we're nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, the our interest is in uh, making our members aware of what the different platforms are and what's sure. happening. So certainly, we knew that uh, ICBC would be um, would be a, an election issue, and I think a, a pretty predictable one, a pretty obvious. Uh, target, actually, no matter what way you look at it. Mm-hmm. And of course, in some Canadian provinces, because of the pandemic and the lockdown, uh, and therefore, of course, working from home and all the rest of it, basically not driving much, has caused some insurers, private mostly, in other Canadian provinces to issue rebates to some of their insured drivers because, of course, they've been paying premium dollars for maximum use and haven't come anywhere close to it. They've demanded some rebates, and by gosh, some insurance companies have come up with some. What's the story here in bc about that well there's it really depends on um whose version you want to listen to uh-huh. I guess. um and and that's what it boils down to the an insurer of course has to carry reserves and have funds on uh, at hand in order to offset its liabilities um and in british columbia B, the icbc has in excess of 12 billion dollars in outstanding liabilities Hmm. Um, so it, it isn't a matter of what's happened lately. It's a matter of what's happened historically. Um, and we do have a province that, that is very litigious, um, and they've got to make sure they got reserves on hands in order to be able to, to deal with that. We're, we're still a province that uh, one can file a tort law or tort case um, and sue the insurer. So they've got to have the fund set aside to do that. Right. Um, so it's not simply a matter of, well, lately we've been doing okay. We need our money back. Um, those funds were sitting there. And, you know, they, those funds, there's, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of money, one would say, that should still be there that was taken out by prior governments. And, uh, you know, we're hearing, you know, numbers anywhere between over a billion dollars worth of funds um, that were used for other purposes than, than insurance. Right. So, um, we've got a different equation here. We can't simply point toward um, another kind of insurance and say, well, look, they're, they're doing it over here. Um, private insurance often is funded by sources other than simply the province they're in. Um, one of the other things to remember is that that $12 billion that's set aside, if there's any fluctuations in the markets, then they get hit. 
So, you know, a $10 billion, $12 billion, a 10% hit hits mm-hmm. them extremely hard. That's right. Uh, $1.2 1. There it goes. It disappears again. So I think it's simpler. It's not as simple as simply saying, uh, you know, we're not driving as much. Right. A number of people took their vehicles off the road. Other people reduced their insurance. So you can see how that changes the equation quite drastically. No question. Now, you're saying that at the Automotive Retailers Association of BC, Adrian, you're taking, you're approaching this from a a nonpartisan basis. Basically, your task in all of this is providing a maximum amount of information to your members so they can make well-informed decisions. Now, with ICBC, uh, we'll talk about uh, uh, mandatory vehicle testing in a second, but with ICBC and the notion, for example, proposed by the Liberals in this election of returning to some form of competitive environment in which other insurers would be brought into the marketplace, uh, does uh, the, does your association take a position on that uh, one way or another, or again, is it just another election option to, for consideration? It's another election option for consideration, Sterling. And, and uh, we, our task is to work with government, to work with ICBC, um, to work with the various other different monitoring agencies and provide a product to the consumer um, that is reliable. We will work with whatever environment we find ourselves in. Gotcha. Um, so that that's makes that's our focus. Sure. Well, that makes sense. And again, the idea being that uh, regardless of where you are in the automotive uh, uh, sector, uh, the the better informed you are, the better decision you are likely to make. And your information, by the way, just if you don't have to belong to the Automotive Retailers Association to go to their website and check the provincial election news, and you, it's very well done. It's very well organized, and you go through it every day since it's been called and the promises that have been made, and it's just all identified as it is. You know, take it for what it is but now you know and that's what you're doing here now you know right exactly much like what you do um for the for the consumers and the and uh the bc uh, bc's drivers and and consumers um it's simply a matter of giving them the information they need to make a decision i don't there's very seldom a situation i think where you can just put a blanket there you go there's the best answer everybody go with that um, it really depends on on who you are and, and where you are in the market. One of the things that you and I talked about last time we're here, and, and it, it's, a, it's a real problem in the industry, and it's compounded by e-vehicles. A, mm. a, there aren't enough new technicians, new uh, automotive technicians, period, coming into the industry. And B, a subset of that is that given there's a fewer people coming into the industry in the first place, that means there are even fewer of them who are choosing to learn about electric vehicles and be in a position to service them as more and more of them become popular and in the marketplace. Recruitment, yeah, very much so. Recruitment, yeah. Adrian. Recruitment is extremely important. And uh, get, get, sort of getting the word out to what the new world of automotive is. It is not this, uh, you know, it, it just seems to have become over time considered to be sort of a dirty job and a, sort of a, a bottom of the totem pole job. And this is really not the case at all. Um you know, the, the people that work on those vehicles, if you watch them today, um, are using computers most of the time Indeed. in order to diagnose what's going on yep. and, 
And they have to have a much more advanced knowledge. They need to understand electronics. They need to understand hydraulics. They need to understand uh, a multitude of systems now, including um, a lot of computer programming issues. Um, so it is a completely different world than, than it has been. And it will continue to develop as we get more and more uh, safety systems and automation within vehicles. Um, LIDAR, the, which is the light um, ranging and, and distancing systems uh, that are used, are all parts of those vehicles now. Uh, so the, the kind of technology and understanding and training necessary um, is much more advanced. Uh, so there's, there's really a lot there. The other one is diversity. Uh, we, are, we are missing diversity in the industry. Um, it's an industry that has sort of grown up to be what, sort of a male-dominated type industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, we really need to get over that. That, that is not uh, the world today. Uh, and we need to it, – it's a little bit ironic. Um, you, you've probably heard in the news recently some issues ICBC's had um, regarding – some racial prejudice, for instance, mm-hmm. within within the, it. It's this is something we absolutely have to stamp out. And interestingly, I've been talking with ICBC senior management over the past few months about exactly that, about how do we attract a wider range of people and make our industry more open to different ethnic groups and genders, etc. Mm-hmm. So I happen to know that at the, the the top of ICBC, the senior vice presidents and uh, Nicholas Amenda, for instance, uh, that uh, they are absolutely um, looking to to increase, um, you know, sort of gender awareness and ethnic awareness. They were devastated by what just went down. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just one more indication that you know we're we're concerned about these types of things happening. Um, because we're at a time when we need to be doing exactly the opposite. It's interesting because if you go into any new car showroom anywhere in BC, that is a, that is not an issue. There is a very diverse sales force ready to serve anyone who comes in and uh, and ready and, and quite willing. And and it is not represented that that uh, that diversity in the showroom is not necessarily uh, represented through the entire industry. And of course, it's it needs a lot of work, Adrian. Scoville is with us. Mr. Scoville is the CEO of the Automotive Retailers Association of BC. Uh, Adrian, I bought a car a few months ago. It was from out of province. So when I went to put my new BC plates on this car, uh, the first question my insurance agent asked me before handing over the plates was, may I see your inspection certificate? And fortunately, the seller had done that and and it had passed and all of that. So uh, for an out of province vehicle to be licensed in British Columbia, one has to go and receive an inspection certificate. So uh, you're calling for, the Automotive Retailers Association is calling for that inspection process to take place on an annual basis on every vehicle in the province. Yes? Uh, more or less. So uh, we're not necessarily saying it would have to be annual. Um, the, you know, a brand new vehicle that, that is being sold and still, you know, essentially still under warranty, etc., the modern vehicles don't need to have that inspection on an annual basis. Okay. Um, what is a little ironic about the situation you just laid out is that they can very well come from a province in British Columbia, sorry, in, in, in Canada, that does require an inspection regularly. Mm. Yes. We do have provinces that do. 
So rather ironically, you can take it out of a province that's been inspecting that vehicle on on a month on an annual basis, bring it to BC, and you have to have it inspected. But one that is here doesn't. So, um, it, how, so did we not use and not? And I'm not talking about air care because air care did, did not no, rub British Columbians no. well. It was clearly a cash grab, and and so that's a whole other thing. But yes. did we not at one point used to have some kind of annual or regular vehicle inspe- inspection re- re- routine whereby I got a little sticker for your window? I mean, that's not that f- long ago, is it? Um, no, it's not. We, and you're not particularly showing your age by remembering there was a little <laughs> sticker in your window. Uh, no, we, we did have uh, mandatory vehicle inspections at one time. Um, it, was, it sort of morphed and it got into, well, we're really just looking at um, the air care for air care, which was to look at vehicle emissions. Right. But essentially, modern vehicles made that redundant. So it wasn't needed anymore. Um, but in terms of safety... Well, that's a completely different story. Um, so if you if you take a look at sort of some of the averages that we did a study from 2015 through 2019, roughly 300,000 car accidents a year, uh, about 60 odd thousand of those result in some form of uh, significant injury. And about 280 plus on average, people die in car accidents every year. So you can imagine if, if that's the amount, that's like a, a, um, a commercial aircraft going down, mm-hmm. killing everybody on board every single year, year after year. And we would say two things. One, you don't need to be a certified tradesperson to work on that aircraft. Mm-hmm. And B, there's no inspections done. So when you take a look at it from that standpoint, it seems kind of crazy. So um, what, what sort of parameters would you set? Because you've made it a, a very clear point. And even with air care, as I recall, if your car was brand new, you didn't have to go through that process. It was considered to be already a low, a low enough emitting vehicle that the test was redundant. So how, freak, how old uh, a vintage vehicle would yours have to be before it would fall in line to be tested, mandatory testing? And how frequently would you have those tests conducted, Adrian? Well, we're doing some research on that right now because there are plenty of countries, the, the top 10 safest countries in the world to, to drive. Um, all of them have certified tradespeople and all have certified inspections in one form or another. Okay. Uh, there is not a clear indication that annual is better than every two years. Um, and there are others where it's at the point of sale. So when you go to, to sell your vehicle... Um, that it would be inspected. Mm-hmm. Um, so the most logical thing would be um, to, to start with would be looking at when your vehicle is being sold, because you do not know as you purchase that vehicle um, how it was kept and maintained. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be one point, that, that sort of the minimal entry point, if you will, to, to a, an inspection program. Then there were other versions which would look at um, every second year, um, and even the possibility of it being every five years as, as we watch technology develop. Um, and one of the things to, to point out with this, air care became redundant. The, the vehicles themselves uh, soon developed to a point where um, it wasn't really doing anything and it was just a cash grab. You're right. So, so one could argue, well, look at how sophisticated vehicle cars are today. Uh, that is the difference. Um, the modern vehicles have active safety systems in them. They are systems that are functioning actively in order to protect the occupant. So one of them is the automated braking system, for instance. So 
it's going to have a LIDAR, a, a light emitting uh, range finding system on board that says, hey, there's something in front of you. You're not stopping, so I'm going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. Well, if it doesn't see that thing, it's not going to. The other thing is, if it sees and thinks there's something there, which it, there isn't, it's going to do the same thing. It's going to stick the brakes on. It's going to think there's an emergency. Um, so those systems, by them not functioning, it's not like you're driving a normal vehicle. You're, in fact, driving a vehicle that can cause an accident. Mm-hmm. So these, it's very important that they be working correctly. And, and really, for the average consumer, there is absolutely no way that they are going to know whether or not that's functioning properly. Um, so that's just an example. Um, is there that, is there a point, Adrian, because, uh, you know, this is a controversial issue, as you well appreciate. Is oh, there, are, are, and, you're, and you're talking about ongoing survey. Nothing is etched in stone yet. You have this principle in mind, which is more testing for more vehicles, uh, just to, for general overall road safety. Uh, and you're still trying to finesse those details. Uh, are you uh, encouraging people listening to us now, for example? Do you have a website where you can go and, and maybe uh, take part in a survey and indicate your feelings about all of this? How are you get, getting British Columbia drivers to connect with you? Well, we call you. <laughs> uh, you're the tip of the iceberg, Sterling. Okay. This, this is, you are you are at the very front end. In fact, you are one of the people who's picked up on, on what we're up to uh, first. Um, so we are just uh, sort of communicating out there. Um, we're actually in an election process right now, so normally we would not really be releasing this information, but um, it's something that that has sort of been burning with us for quite some time, um, and we had it ready to go for now. So you're you're seeing it come out. Well, we appreciate um, that, and, and so, I'm out of time here this morning, Adrian. I, I I appreciate yours and bringing this to the attention of our listeners. Clearly, this is something that is going to it's a work in progress. It's going to go on well past the election. So let's talk about it again after all the election dust has settled, and we can really zoom in on this. Thanks for this yeah, morning. Definitely. Just a few days ago, three top-notch epidemiologists from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford produced a declaration calling for an end to widespread COVID-19 lockdowns. That declaration has come to be called the Great Barrington Declaration. They were joined, the three doctors who wrote it originally, were joined by 35 co-signers, highly credentialed medical experts from around the world, including our next guest. And then after the declaration went public several days ago, tens of thousands of people, a few thousand apparently doctors, have co-signed the document as well. And the tally continues to grow. Here to interpret the great Barrington Declaration is one of its signatories. It's a pleasure to welcome our guest from Queen's University, Dr. Matthew Strauss. He is a critical care physician and an assistant professor of medicine at Queen's University, joining us this morning from Kingston. Dr. Strauss, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to have you. Happy Thanksgiving to you, sir. Uh, it's it's ironic, I suppose, in some ways, Dr. Strauss, that this declaration signed by yourself uh, comes out on, on, on uh, in advance of yet another lockdown, not province-wide in Ontario, Dr. Strauss, but uh, certainly the most populated areas, Toronto and Peel and the southern portion of the province and, of course, the Ottawa area. Now, you're in Kingston, due south of Ottawa. Are you affected directly by that? 
No, the, the changes from a couple of days ago do uh, do not change anything in Kingston. So we're, we're status quo for the time being. Essentially, though, the Great Barrington Declaration, if I can summarize it in three words, is no more lockdowns. Is that a, an effective summary? Um, I think that's the negative side, actually. I, I, I'm more interested in the positive side. And, and the word that they use several times in the declaration and, and what and part of what made me um, excited about it is focused protection plan. Okay. Um, so in addition to not doing lockdowns, which the signatories, we agree, are positively counterproductive. Um, if, and part of why they're counterproductive is we could have taken all that energy and all of that money that we've put into uh, lockdowns and, and crippling our economy and putting it into focusing on protecting the people who are truly vulnerable of this disease. So the idea being those who are not vulnerable should be allowed to essentially try to live ni- life as normally as possible. Precisely. So, um, the, and the, the, we didn't have all of the data uh, back in March. It, it, was, it was looking this way. But we now know if you're an elderly person or a person with, uh, who's elderly with Im- important other medical problems mm-hmm. and you get COVID, you're a thousand times more likely to die than a young, healthy person who gets COVID. Right. If you're a young, healthy person who gets COVID, you are more likely to die in a car accident this year. So it's about a one in 10,000 chance of dying in a car accident for, for everyone in Canada and one in 10,000 of dying of COVID if you're, if you're under 35. So it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, in our view, to shut down the economy and, and, and frankly, ruin some people's lives who are under 35, um, deprive children of their education, young adults of um, uh, career opportunities and, and adults of their livelihood. Uh, and it's our belief that doing all of that, doing that damage to our social connections and our economy are going to result in more deaths in those populations um, than COVID-19 would have. Let's talk a little bit about the under 30s, Doc, because that's probably the reason that Doug Ford has uh, hit the, uh, hit the, the, put the key back in the door in significant parts of your province of Ontario again this weekend. He and many others are looking at the increase in uh, c- uh, COVID uh, cases across the province and seeing, uh, and we've noticed this change in demographics since the summer, when, uh, as you pointed out, when this first started, it was an old person's disease you know you had to be you had to be look out for grandma and grandpa just just make sure that because the, they were most vulnerable everybody else was fine and then we learned over the summer that that's not the case at all younger people can certainly get this disease but you're saying uh, because of the knowledge that we've accumulated since the beginning of this outbreak that we are confident when a younger person say a 30 year old person contracts COVID-19 that individual is not likely to die in 2020 they're very unlikely to die as i, as I mentioned it's a, it's a one in ten thousand chance uh, for someone under 35 for for children it's even lower it's one in sixty thousand, or 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 even lower than that i've seen some data to suggest it's one in a million for children now um with an important caveat though uh younger people with important medical problems are still at risk of course so, so that one in ten thousand person under 30 who does die probably had an identifiable risk factor um, so there have been scant news reports of, of young people um, uh, passing away, unfortunately, from COVID-19. But it's often the case that they had uh, quite something else wrong with them. And then with respect, well, and then just re- with respect to what I've been seeing in my own clinical work, mm-hmm, that yeah. is also borne out in the data. Um, so I've, I'm a life support specialist. And by the way, 
it's my life's work to keep elderly people with medical problems alive and, and living their lives as uh, fruitfully as possible. So, so every death is traffic uh, is tragic. And I don't, I don't want to see any elderly people get this disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of the eight uh, people with COVID-19 who I have treated with life support, all of them were over 65 and all of them uh, had very significant other medical problems. Right. So, so I'm, I'm saying this on, on their behalf that I want to see all of our energy into protecting them because they're really the people who are um, likely to have a, a bad time. Okay, so what's the difference, Dr. Strauss, between, and you call this focused protection, that's the positive aspect of no more lockdowns, that you, you, you achieve that by focusing on those individuals who are most vulnerable in our midst and make sure that they are cared for. Uh, and, and what's the difference between focused protection and what they're doing in Sweden with this herd immunity approach? Or is it the same thing? Right. So the Great Barrington Declaration does lean on the idea of herd immunity, that um, uh, if we allow young, healthy people to get COVID-19, it stands to reason. And and all of the data that we have so far bears out that after they get it and they get over it, as they always do, or 99.99% of the time uh, they do, um, after that, they likely have immunity. And then... And then uh, the virus cannot propagate in our communities as unpredictably and as rapidly as it currently is able to do. So um, it it absolutely is the case that um, herd immunity is one of the major benefits of the focused protection plan. That that once once I've had it and I'm not going to go out and look for it, but once I've had it, um, I I can be it's reasonable to think that I, 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 I will have immunity and then I can see my grandfather and give him a hug. Right. Um, and, and not be worried about, um, uh, causing his demise. Dr. Strauss, those who are opposed to the notion of herd immunity say basically it's naive and unscientific. How do you respond to that? So there, there can't really be such a thing as being opposed to the notion of herd immunity. Herd immunity is a biologic, uh, epidemiologic fact. Um, and it's it's something we have relied on, particularly with respect to vaccines, to, to protect vulnerable members of the population from contagious diseases in the past. Yep. And um, so it's it's not really controversial that herd immunity exists in terms of detractors of the Great Barrington Declaration. What they um, what they have said is, well, we don't know if immunity exists to COVID-19. And I. I just don't think that's an honest read of the situation and the data we have. So there's been something like 35 million cases of COVID-19 in the world so far. Uh, and there's been about six or seven uh, well-documented cases of reinfection. So if you're talking about a one in five million chance over six months of being reinfected, that sounds to me like very robust natural immunity. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people say, well, we don't, uh, I, sorry, I have heard people say, we don't know if, um, uh, natural immunity from a coronavirus infection is long lasting. Uh, we don't know how long it will last uh, for SARS-CoV-2, but for SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003, many people got it. Uh, the death rate was much, much higher, but, but many people survived. And we have recently uh, done studies um, looking at those people now in 2020, and they still have residual immunity to SARS-CoV-1. So, that's 17 years of protection yeah. from SARS-CoV-1. I can't say that that's going to be the case with SARS-CoV-2. But again, six or seven reinfections out of 35 million is 
awfully promising. Our guest joining us from Queen's University in Kingston is Dr. Matthew Strauss, where he teaches medicine, by the way, and is also a critical care physician. And Dr. Strauss, uh, uh, as we're talking about the Great Barrington Declaration, in which Canadian and doctors around the planet are suggesting lockdown alternatives, I wonder, as a critical care physician who sees people every day at the hospital, whether you're picking up on a certain COVID fatigue, and, and, and it's, it's not a medical thing necessarily, Dr. Strauss, but it's, 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 uh, I'm, I'm sensing this more and more all the time. People uh, are, are, are just sort of wearing out. Uh, it's an emotional, mental thing as much as physical, uh, because for many, many months, lockdowns and all the rest of it, we've been essentially told to be very, very afraid. And you know, I think we're I think we're starting to burn out on that. Be cautious, be aware, absolutely, but be very very afraid all the time. I don't think so. And I th- have you pick up on this at all? Are you seeing this? Uh, Sterling, I, I uh, I'll be um, frank. I'm seeing death and despair uh, as a result of the COVID nineteen fatigue that you are describing. Um, so, and my own clinical experience is borne out in the data. So in BC, overdose deaths have just about tripled Absolutely. before the pandemic. Yep. Um, in, and, and behind each opioid death is, is an ocean of despair and grieving families and, um, and suffering. Uh, in Canada, uh, nationally, uh, contemplation of suicide is three times higher than it was this time last year. So, uh, yeah, I, I really believe that people are breaking because of these counterproductive lockdown measures. In terms of what I'm seeing in the hospital, I have admitted elders to the hospital um, with starvation. I had one lady come from a retirement home. She had been uh, relying on her family to come feed her. And once her family was banned from the premises uh, because of the lockdown, she stopped eating. Oh and she came to hospital um, with malnutrition dying of malnutrition. Wow. Um, I had another lady from a nursing home who just gave up on life because she wasn't able to see her family anymore. Mm -hmm. And she just refused to eat. Um, And she also came to the hospital, apparently with starvation. Um, I I saw one woman with uh, what's called Takasubo's cardiomyopathy or broken heart syndrome, where where she literally went into heart failure because of the stress and the fear and the social isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm seeing it all over the place. And it, it's my honest belief that um, lockdowns have done more harm than good. But, um, and in addition to, you know, all those cases I just described to you, those don't show up in the COVID-19 mortality numbers. Right. But also just the, the suffering um, behind each of those cases, that, that doesn't show up on any chart. You can't, you can't quantify human suffering in that way. And that's why generally in Western societies, we don't force treatment plans on people that aren't consistent with their values. So I think um, many, many elders in nursing homes across the country have been put basically in uh, solitary confinement, yes. which is a gross violation of their human rights. Solitary confinement is how we punish serial killers if they're bad once they're in, once they're behind bars. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I see it all over the place that, that people are losing hope in my in my uh, town of Kingston, where I live. 
just you don't have to work in the hospital walking down this, the street but the number of shops that are closed and yeah. the people who are not doing well who are screaming at no one mm-hmm. or talking muttering to themselves or going through garbage cans um has is i won't put a number on it but it's much much higher than it was a year ago so, so I, I'm, I'm seeing despair everywhere so it's pretty easy based on this uh, these examples that you you just talked to us about dr matt uh that it, it's it's matt it's personal to you so let's talk about the great barrington declaration in which you and fellow signatories around the planet call for smarter more data-driven approaches in order to protect the vulnerable, of course, but set low-risk categories of people free. So what are the smarter, more data-driven approaches that may get us past lockdown mentality? Well, I think um, I think you know what most of them are, and, and we have been talking about them in tandem. So um, I'll give you an example. Masks work. I, I, we've been using masks in the hospital since I was a medical student mm-hmm. 15 years ago um, to prevent uh, ourselves from getting diseases. I've looked after COVID-19 patients, who uh, were some of whom were attached to the ventilator, some of whom weren't yet attached to the ventilator, but uh, some of whom coughed all over me. But I performed hand hygiene before putting on my mask. Mm-hmm. I wore eye protection. I spent 20 minutes in the room with them, and I did not get COVID-19. Right. So I think proper education and the, you know the PPE issue. Uh, I'm, you know, we've we've talked a lot about uh, testing, tracking, and uh, tracing. Um, and I don't know. I'm not as uh, uh, familiar with the the current testing situation in BC. But in Ontario, our testing regime has been brought to its knees um, by you know stressed out parents who who've been told by the, the school or the daycare that they have to get a COVID test yeah. on their runny nosed toddler who has almost zero chance of dying of COVID-19. So, so all of these other terms that, that you've been hearing about and data is accumulating, we can use all of those strategies with, with more resources and more attention paid to the actually vulnerable people. So, so the focus protection plan is not, mm, it's, it's not quite rocket science. It's not, it's not uh, out of this world. It's the other stuff we've been talking about. So let's talk a little bit about the appetite amongst the class that can actually affect change. We're talking politicians at the provincial, particularly federal level. In the, in the case of this pandemic, the government of Canada has uh, taken the prime, uh, the lead on management. So uh, what sort of appetite do you sense in those circles for your approach? Um uh, so I will say I've had, um, and particularly since the Great Barrington Declaration has come out, I've had multiple texts and emails um, from former mentors, professors of mine, um, you know, some infectious disease specialists I've never met, uh, some immunologists I've never met, who have said, thank you for speaking out. We think the same thing. We're going to sign the Great Barrington Declaration. Right, yeah. we, we've, been, we've been thinking this all along, but we've been afraid to say it. So I, I, my own read of the situation is, um, if you look back, um, Patty Haydu, on March 13th, the, the Minister of Health of yeah, yeah. the country, posted this picture of herself and all the public health officials basically in a big group hug on March 13th saying, don't worry, we're going to protect you from COVID-19. Right. They weren't doing lockdown and social distancing back then. And then if you look at the replies on that tweet, there, it's the general public who was um, quite panicked, screaming, what are you guys doing? You need to be locked down. So I think we live in a democracy. To some extent, we get the government that we deserve. Um, I think politicians and public officials, to some extent, um, have been forced to take the actions that they have taken 
by um, public panic and a bit of a crowd mentality that's um, that's developed. So it's it's my belief that if we stand up, um, those, uh, you know, those who are experts or very well researched or liter- uh, literate on the topic uh, and just kind of speak some truth to the crowd, and that's the idea behind the Great Bar- Barrington Declaration, I think our um, politicians and public officials will come around to this sort of strategy. Yeah, they seem to be a little a little out of sync with where people are at on a daily basis. And of course, they can write that off to uh, management considerations. But sooner or later, that's going to catch up with them. Uh, and uh, and I think the, what you've described, and, and I'm certainly hearing and feeling a lot more of this, this whole culture of very, very afraid uh, is starting to, starting to wear on people to extreme levels. Dr. Strauss, I'm out of time, sir. I thank you for yours. I take my hat off to you for being one of the early signatories to this. It's an important declaration. I'm going to commend the Great Barrington Declaration to my listeners as a Google project for today. It is well worthwhile. Dr. Strauss, thanks for this, Martin and Matthew, and and happy Thanksgiving, sir. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Dr. Matthew Strauss at Queen's University in Kingston. Time to check in with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It's always a pleasure to welcome Laura Jones to the program. She is a vice president of the organization based here in Vancouver. And on Sunday mornings, as we have learned over the past, uh, tends to come armed with the very latest survey information along with a lot of facts and figures. Laura, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. So let's talk. Happy Thanksgiving to you, first and foremost, Laura. And yeah, happy Thanksgiving to yeah, you too. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so let's talk about surveys. You and I have uh, d- I discovered quite by accident, as a result of having you on the program a couple of Sundays over the summer, that you do a countless, rel- countless uh, numbers of surveys, relentlessly surveying your business uh, members from coast to coast in Canada, and and you're able, therefore, on Sunday mornings, having the freshest of information at your fingertips to really give us a sense of of what the pulse is like this weekend. How are we doing, Laura? Well, businesses continue to have a long, long list of worries, and included in those worries are things uh, like the economic recovery. Uh, Customers won't come back even once at full strength, even once the um, COVID crisis is over is on the list. There's health concerns. There's mental mental health concerns are high on the list Mm -hmm. um, for business owners. So there continue to be a long list of worries. But one of the things we did um, heading into the Thanksgiving weekend was to ask business owners what they're grateful for and um, they are so incredibly grateful for their customers and that might be a nice place to start because you know it's always there's so much bad news um, sterling that it's nice to have some it's nice to have some good news and 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 the businesses are saying things like they're so very grateful for local customers who um, consider me to be essential that was what one business owner said right um, very grateful for the patience of their customers for following safety protocols uh, one one um, business owner said we're we're grateful that our customers believe we'll be back um, the faith that customers are having in, in business is, is really important uh, right now. Some customers are giving cookies and small gifts to business owners just as a small token of appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things are grateful that customers bought gift cards um, early in the pandemic. 
Um, and, you know, another business owner said, I can't thank them enough for their loyalty. Um, so I think that captures a lot of what small businesses are grateful for when it comes to their customers. And I know a lot of small business owners out there who would be very grateful that I'm on their behalf conveying this message to their customers about and, how important they are to them. Well, right you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, f- a very important message to pass along, Laura. And, you know, I think the thing that, that might surprise many of us this morning is despite the fact that there is enormous stress and pressure, especially on small business operators, and these are the backbone of the Canadian economy. This is where most of the jobs end up coming from. These people are just that in many cases have been just crushed by all of this, and yet they're resilient. They're just trying their darndest to get this enterprise back up and running, and they're working themselves almost into nothing, and yet they find time to be thankful for a few things. And I'm looking at the dashboard on your website. For example, this is a couple of weeks old, but it says fully open Canadian small businesses. They were up to 64% recently. Is that number holding this weekend, Laura? That number is holding. Um, you know, of course, we'd like to see that number increase, but that number is holding, and we've got about 34% back up to full staff right. and um, 27% at, at, at close to, you know, at, at either full revenue or, or slightly above full revenue. So those numbers are kind of holding. What we'd like to see, of course, is that they improve, and they've been kind of holding steady for a number of weeks. And, um, uh, yeah, so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're really hoping that as we head into the fall and, you know, I think a lot of people are starting their Christmas shopping. I did a few, I did a, I stopped in at a few local businesses yesterday and started my Christmas shopping because Christmas shopping is probably going to be spread out a little bit more, Mm -hmm. um, this year. And so maybe doing it slowly, but over a longer period of time and over a longer period of time that, you know, um, that that revenue picture in particular will look better, but businesses got some good news on Friday as you know, um, from government in terms of the support programs right. that are available, particularly with respect to rent, which has been such a stress for business owners. Mm-hmm. So finally, we have a decent rent relief program in place. And I think that's a huge relief to many business owners um, right across the country. I know I talked to several yesterday who were just um, you know, I said I would dance on my desk when we got decent rent relief because this is one I, I personally have been um, fighting for. Uh-huh. And um, I, I think a lot of business owners were, were smiling yesterday because the new program is so much better than the old one. So you did a few moments of the flamenco on, on your desktop, did you, Laura, But when this came through? By the way, <laughs> this, this, is, uh, this is the program, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the program in which the business person uh, can directly apply for rent relief, uh, whereas before... Before they had to go through the landlord making the application on their behalf. And the problem was not as many landlords as had been hoped bothered to apply. That's right. So it fixes that that key problem with the first uh, program. So as a business owner now, you can apply directly for rent relief. The second important thing it fixes is before you had to have a 70% revenue loss right. to qualify. And that's a pretty high threshold. Now it's on a sliding scale. So even if you have a 1% revenue loss, you'll qualify not for very much help, obviously, in that in that situation, but you'll still qualify. So I talked to a couple of business owners yesterday who were still a bit confused about that piece of it, understandably. The yeah. news is, is just out. But the good news is that if you have a 10% revenue loss, 20%, 30%, you'll qualify. You'll get less help than those with a 70% loss. 
um, but the um, but there will be um, help available. So that fix is another big problem with the rent uh, program. And there are going to be uh, top ups for those businesses that have been forced to close due to um, health orders. And again, you know that's incredibly um, important to those businesses. So that that was a big piece of, of of good news yesterday. A second piece of good news yesterday: the Canada Emergency Business Account which has helped a lot of business owners. And that's the one with the $40,000 the loan, thing, loan yep. and $10,000 forgivable. Right. Now um, there's another $20,000 loan available with 10000 additional $10,000 forgivable. So we know a lot of business owners happy about that. Um, one one um, piece, though, that I do want to say is for those business owners out there with personal bank accounts, we're continuing to fight for you because there was an announcement made months ago that um, the Canada Emergency Business Account would be available to those business owners, and it's not yet. And right. I know many of them are, you know, ready to ready to chain themselves to Parliament Hill. They're so frustrated. Um, so, you know, we're we're we continue to advocate for that. So there's still some holes in the support, but Friday's announcements made things a lot better. I'm Sterling Fox. Laura Jones is back with us today. Ms. Jones is a vice president with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And Laura, I'm looking at the website, which of course is just chock-a-buck full of wonderful information. I'm scrolling through all of the questions. We've been talking about the latest results from your surveying of your members across Canada, and uh, and of course, especially with respect to the new uh, improvements the federal government made just on Friday uh, with, this, with support programs that they'd missed the point on a couple of points earlier. But I'm, as I scroll through the questions that you ask your members on a regular basis, this one sort of jumped out at me, Laura. Where do you think your business will be in six months? And the options range from back to normal to permanently scaled down operations to don't know or to close down with several other options in between. What's the status of that question this morning? Well, we still have a number of um, businesses who are very concerned about getting back to um, normal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that we saw on this week's survey, we didn't ask exactly the same question this week, but one of the things that we saw on this week's survey is when we asked about those top concerns, the number one concern is about a second wave. So 80% of business owners are saying, and by the way, only 1% say they have no concerns. Right, so right. There's, everybody's got a long list of worries, but 80% are saying they're worried about surviving that second wave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a number of business owners I'm hearing from who are telling me that, you know, slowly things were getting better, and then September hit, and... Um, business dropped again. And I think that that, you know, has to do with, with, with um, consumers also being worried about that second wave. So 80% are really worried about that, that second wave. Even though uh, they've done uh, probably everything they've been ordered to do, certainly by the public health authorities, but most business operators have gone well above and beyond the minimum in terms of making their environments uh, safe and secure for their customers so they can come in and conduct whatever a bit of business, whether it's a restaurant or a, a grocery store or whatever the enterprise may be. They've most In most cases, they've really sort of gone well beyond the minimums, haven't they? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you go into businesses and you see the hand sanitizer right at the in front of the door. Um, often there's a sign saying limited to, you know, three or four customers, sure. whatever the business can accommodate. Mm-hmm. And um, you're seeing, you know, staff masked up. You're you're seeing signs asking customers to wear masks. Um, and so, yeah, businesses are going, you know, they're doing everything they can to keep their customers and their staff um, safe. But people are worried. And so, you know, what when we ask businesses, why aren't you back to normal revenue? What's going on that you're, you know, only 30% of business owners are, are back to normal revenue. And the, the top answer is fewer customers. Sure. But also when customers are coming in, half of them are spending less than they did pre-pandemic. And that can be because they're worried about their own financial um, situation. It's understandable, but of course that's really worrying for, um, for small businesses. Indeed. And you were talking, and it's a very practical thing to do. And I, I know Amazon Prime Day is coming up this week and Walmart's got it big day and all the online people. And of course, it's all, I mean, the, half of the traffic in Metro Vancouver these days seems to be uh, parcel delivery vehicles. And I get all that. But your point about Christmas particularly, and this is a, it, it, it has an emotional quotient to it when we consider Christmas shopping because you've already started and you've started at the local level, buying small gifts for people one at a time at independent business people who need your support. More of us should think along those lines, don't you? Yeah, give the gift of local um, this year. Start early. Um, you know, it, it's fun to go in and support local business owners. And I mean, often when you go into those small shops, you're talking directly to the business owners. Yep. And your purchase matters a lot to them. Um, so absolutely. And we've got a website, um, smallbusinesseveryday.ca. We're encouraging people to use the hashtag smallbusinesseveryday as they're supporting um, local. We've got some fun things planned this fall to make it, you know, you often hear things first on your radio show. So I might as well tell you what we've been talking about in our in our back room. But we've got a contest we're going to run that is to give thank you boxes um, to local businesses and um, but as a customer, you too will get a thank you box if you nominate a local business because I think that the gratitude goes both ways. And you know, um, so and that's going to be that's going to be really fun. So stay tuned for that because that'll have some great um, you know um, things in the box and um, some a little bit of money too to help with that local shopping. But yeah, get out there and support local. I mean, the 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 giant online retailers and the big box stores they're doing fine, huh. um, but your local retailers. They're struggling and they need your help to survive right now. And, you know, maybe buy a little less this Christmas, but support those local retailers. Make that choice to be a conscious consumer. Yeah, smallbusinesseveryday.ca is an interesting site. When you go to it, there are two buttons. I'm a small business supporter or I'm a small business owner. You click on one of the two based on uh, where you're coming from, and then you learn about uh, the everyday challenge, and uh, and, uh, and you get to accept the challenge, and then you get to take on your family and friends. Uh, and so, and this is just the beginning. This is This is where the goodies will be found over the next few weeks, right? Yeah, and we're profiling the different, there are lots of other, um, there are lots of groups that are trying to support local. So, you know, I think about, um, oh, the Royal Bank has, um, you know, extra points for shopping local. You've got TELUS had gift cards earlier in the campaign. So you have these big businesses who are stepping up and doing their part. So we're profiling all of the shop local um, campaigns on the website as well. And, um, you know, we'll continue to improve it. But this is where you can go. It's kind of a one-stop shop to, okay, if I'm interested in supporting small business, how do I, how do, I do that? 
Um, there are lots of different options here, and then we're, we'll be contributing our own option with the, you know, with the partners who have helped us put this together, with the big business partners who have helped uh, put this together. This is also, Sterling, where you'll find the Small Business Recovery Dashboard data, the latest on this. So um, you'll, you'll see our fully open, fully staffed normal sales, and you can do it by province. Uh-huh. So that you, you, know, you can get a sense of what's going on in British Columbia. And when we've got interesting new studies about this, so, you know, we did one on how long at the current pace of recovery, how long will it take for businesses to get back to normal? Mm-hmm. That data is on there and some scary numbers for hospitality. They need, uh, obviously, kickstart. It's going to take eight years for them to get back to normal at yeah. the current pace. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great website. Congratulations on it. It's, it's good stuff. Small business every day. All one word. Small business every day dot ca. That's from the folks at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, whose vice president Laura Jones has been gracious enough to join us on Thanksgiving weekend again. Again, happy Thanksgiving, Laura. Thanks for this. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Try to imagine a world without art and music. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to go there. And so let's talk a little bit, as we were last week, about those centers, those performing venues in around our communities, and how they're the people that bring us the art and the music in many cases, and how are they doing since the pandemic? They, many of them have been just outright closed, and many of them are starting to come back. We talked to the people at the Act in Maple Ridge last week, and this weekend it's a pleasure to say good morning to Lenore Swenerton, who is Director of Donor Relations and Audience Development at the K Meek Arts Center in West Vancouver. Lenore, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Sterling. It's nice of you to join us this morning. You have reopened, uh, as was the case with the Act, uh, very recently. Uh, what was it, September 24th? You finally were able to have people back in the center? We did. We had 50 people come in to see us down um, Monkey Beach. So we were thrilled to uh, open our doors again. So it was September 24th, and you had been closed since what? What, mid-March when everyone else went down, right? We, yeah, exactly, we did. Yeah. So, and I know there were some renovations that had been planned for the centre anyway this year. Uh, were they able to be done uh, while there was nothing going on? And it, was that, in fact, kind of a bonus for the people doing the work? <laughs> strange way to look at it, I know, but... Yeah, strange way to look at it, but yes, that was... Um, actually, it was a, a little bonus because... The staff weren't getting in the way, and construction continued. Um, we put a, uh, we have a three 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 levels in our venue, and we don't have an, we didn't have an elevator that took everybody to all three levels, and that was the renovations that were taking place. So yeah, so they're complete. Oh, okay. Which so, is good news. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So I went to the K Meek Arts Center website, kmeek.com, and yes. the first thing I see is a picture of Michael Casehammer. And then there's the yes. corner piano trio. And then uh, there's <laughs> another performance. So this would indicate that uh, uh, ever so uh, uh, slowly, you're reintroducing live performances. The first event on the 24th was a movie screening. Have you had live uh, music since that screening? No, Michael K. Sammer will be the first okay. um, performance um, of music. Yep. So, and he's doing three concerts for us. The last one on the 16th is not quite sold out. The first two are. So, October 16th, if you want to see Michael K. Sammer live, there are still a few tickets. At the Grosvenor Theatre. Now, is this the yes. theatre where the capacity is 450 uh, typically, but under COVID conditions, it's down to what, about 50 seats? Um, so it's 500 seats in the theater, and we're down to 50 seats. Uh-huh. So 
So there are 450 empty seats all around you. So, Lenore, is that um, 50 minimum seat that you're running with now your choice, or is that the WorkSafe BC advisory, or uh, how come you, you went with that number? So that's the WorkSafe um, um, number of people that we can have gather in our venue. Thought so. So, so our goal with this is to really carefully follow the safety guidelines. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want to have, you know, um, we've been able to make this work with 50 people financially. We've, we're sort of getting through. But if the number of people that goes down, say, to 25, it'll be really difficult for us to stay open. Yeah. So, so 50 is the safety guideline. So now, as is the case with the, uh, the aquarium and the art gallery and science yeah. world and all of those other venues, if you want to go in person to an event like Michael K's Hammer and his show's coming up this week, you need mm-hmm. to buy tickets in advance online, correct? You do. We're not um, selling tickets at the door. So in advance um, tickets, um, please call us or buy online. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, financially uh, a moment ago, uh, and, and I'm curious, and, and we asked the, the, the folks at the Act the same question. It's been a long, dry spell, and that you're, yes. there you are in the middle of it all at the Arts Centre, ultimately responsible for the, the performing arts venue that you offer to your community. How have you been making it through? Um, well, the board made a decision early on, as soon as we, we shut down, um, that they really wanted to ensure that staff were employed and stayed employed. And so we have managed um, to get through this period with um, our full-time staff still um, working. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, we lost about 70% of our revenue. So it was, it was a big loss for us. But with donors and sponsors and <clears throat> other community support, we have, you know, we've gotten through this period. And now we just have to keep it, you know, I think we can do this with, we're pretty confident with 50 people in the house, we can keep this going. Um, and that's our goal. Interesting. Is, you, you, you mentioned that you have a multi-purpose facility and you indeed have other rooms in the K Meek Arts Centre, uh, which you do. you do rent out to, for the purposes of meeting and, and various other groups. Are any people, and it's all very COVID uh, aware and observant, yeah. uh, are, you, are you making any revenue from the empty rooms or the rooms that used to be empty K, at uh, no. K Meek? Yeah, we are hoping that we will. Um, uh, You know, rental is a large part of our business as well. And, um, and we had, of course, that had to shut down at the same time as our own performances had to shut down. So we are now open for rentals. Um, We may not be able to accommodate everybody because Mm -hmm. it has to fit within the safety guidelines. But, um, but we have rooms that are available for rehearsals or meetings. Um, you know, so things that we can make work in terms of safety, we are open for business. Well, uh, and the, the, so uh, basically, if you want to find out more about that, uh, just pop over to the website, kmeek.com, uh, and uh, all three rooms are described, and all of the COVID precautions and observances are all carefully identified, and uh, we hope that uh, you do get some people uh, showing up and taking advantage of that. Lenore, thanks for this. Uh, it's It's been a tough ride, and yet you've managed to come out on top. You've got terrific concerts lined up, and I bet you no problem getting performers. Those people have been sitting on their hands for months too <laughs> a, a wonderful meeting of the minds when they finally get to go do their thing right yeah exactly exactly i think that the artists are just as enthusiastic to come back 
even to 50 people in a house. Absolutely. It, it, you know, it's still a coming together. Sure enough. So, Lenore, thanks yeah. for this. Continued thanks success to you. Thank you. Lenore right. Swinnerton from the K-Meek Arts Center in West Vancouver. That's it for our show, The App Show with Mike Agarbo coming right up. Happy Thanksgiving from all of us, Julie and Andrew and me, and we'll see you next weekend right here on CKNW.